We really want to be focused more on the future than on the past. And what we recognize is that there is a need today, and there are resources today. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg visits the Port of Alaska. From Alaska Public Media, this is Statewide News on Alaska News Nightly for Tuesday, August 15th. Good evening, I'm Casey Grove. Also tonight, new wildfire smoke forecasts are popular with interior residents. I know that the word got out and that it worked because the number of phone calls we were receiving about smoke and air quality diminished. Those stories and more tonight on Alaska News Nightly. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. You know that eating fruits and vegetables supports good health. But did you also know that frozen and canned produce offers the same health benefits as fresh? It's true. Whether fresh, frozen, canned, or from the land, eating fruits and veggies can lead to a long and healthy life. So when it comes to getting the fruits and veggies you need to stay healthy, remember, every bite counts. This message sponsored by SNAP. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has seen a lot of ports, but until today had never seen one with the existential challenges of the Port of Alaska. The Anchorage Port is embarking on a massive modernization project expected to cost $1.6 billion. And as Alaska Public Media's Liz Ruskin reports, locals hope much of that price tag will be funded by the federal agency Buttigieg leads. Port External Affairs Director Jim Jager played tour guide, pointing out the construction underway and what's ahead in future phases. So what we're doing right now, you see basically all the land on the water side of the tote vessel, the blue vessel, that's what's going to be pulled out and removed. That little peninsula. So that peninsula basically is going to go away. Buttigieg heard about the corrosion destroying the steel pilings of the old dock. He learned that glacial silt and a massive tidal swing act together as a power sander, working away at any pile installed to hold up a new dock. The secretary sought reassurance that the new engineering is solid. So the the technique is completely different than the one that generated the uh, pilings that are now corroding and being replaced, or well, do you also replace it, those? It's on still a wharf on pile. Jager explained about the new steel thickness and anti-corrosion technology. The dock, Jager says, is taller than the Statue of Liberty. You go from the bottom of the piles to the top of the cranes. Just to give you, you know, why is this such an expensive project? It's actually huge. You just can't see a lot of it. The secretary made no major announcements on his port tour. For the local officials who followed Buttigieg around the docks, it was more about what he heard than what he said. Anchorage Assemblywoman Meg Zalatel wanted Buttigieg to see why such a relatively small port, compared to those in the rest of the country, costs so much. So the importance of the secretary's visit is really to show him that the port is not only um, what it appears on paper. Um, this port has so many unique features and um, it plays such an important role to the state that it's um, always hard to convey that until you get out here and you get to see it, talk about the unique circumstances. There was little discussion on the tour about what happened to the last big plan for the Anchorage port. Two decades ago, the federal government sunk hundreds of millions of dollars into a port expansion. It was plagued by design problems and was ultimately ultimately scrapped. Buttigieg says that failed project won't be held against the current one. We really want to be focused more on the future than on the past. And what we recognize is that there is a need today, and there are resources today. 
Buttigieg repeatedly gave credit to President Biden's infrastructure law for providing those resources and noted that both of Alaska's U.S. senators were among the Republicans who crossed the aisle to vote for the law. It's slated to send $2.6 billion to Alaska. Reporting from Anchorage, I'm Liz Ruskin. Secretary Buttigieg kicked off his three-day tour of Alaska yesterday, beginning in the northwest Arctic community of Kotzebue. It was his first time visiting the 49th state. Uh, it's my first time uh, above the Arctic Circle on U.S. soil. And um, uh, other than uh, a brief meeting that we had this morning at Anchorage Airport, this is really the launch of the trip and my first impression of this state. Buttigieg was joined in Kotzebue by Senator Dan Sullivan to meet with statewide aviation leaders and to address challenges in rural Alaska from airport infrastructure to air freight. Supply chain issues for rural communities were also a focus. Buttigieg spent a portion of the afternoon touring the Cape Blossom Road, a decades-long project to connect Kotzebue with the planned deepwater port. In a van ride along the road, Buttigieg said talking to community leaders was critical to understanding how higher costs factor into federal spending on rural infrastructure. Part of why I'm here is it's a very big priority for me, for our department, and for President Biden to make sure that when we're working on infrastructure that it works for everybody. And the answers that make sense in New York City or South Bend, Indiana, where I grew up, are different than what works in uh, a place like the, this region, uh, or, or for that matter, a, a, a place like, uh, like Anchorage. The Cape Blossom Road recently completed phase one, a little less than half of the 11-mile project. The road is supported by local and state funds, as well as a $5 million federal investment. Because it's constructed on permafrost, it has to be insulated to keep the ground cool. Meanwhile, the region's climate continues to warm. Buttigieg said the road was just one example of the Arctic's unique infrastructure challenges. To see how uh, how much goes into uh, creating a mile of road here, uh, to see the vision that the community has for uh, how to expand access to deep water port, to understand what uh, the uh, the barging process does to uh, the, the the cost of living and uh, the cost of construction, uh, all of that's been extremely informative, and and that's exactly why we came. Buttigieg returned to Kotzebue to welcome the community at a potluck and meet-and-greet event before touring Kotzebue's airport to meet with Federal Aviation Administration employees. After the Anchorage visit, the Transportation Secretary is scheduled to travel to the southeast communities of Haines, Skagway, and Juneau tomorrow. Senator Lisa Murkowski will join Buttigieg for that leg of the trip. The two are scheduled to tour an Alaska Marine Highway System terminal and ferry during the Skagway stop. A late summer storm brought quite a bit of rain to southeast Alaska over the weekend. On Saturday, Sitka broke a decades-old daily rainfall record, which elevated the community's landslide risk. It's the second time Sitka's been on medium alert since the groundbreaking landslide warning dashboard was unveiled to the public last year. KCAW's Catherine Rose reports. Record-breaking rainfall over the weekend caused at least one landslide near Sitka. Pete Boyd is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Juneau. He says much of southeast got drenched over the weekend as an atmospheric river moved through. But only Sitka broke a 62-year record. The old record was 4.22 inches set back in 1961. And the new record for 2023 is 4.42 inches of rain in one 24-hour period. Uh, The other thing that this is impressive is this is the eighth highest rainfall for one day for reported at the Sitka Airport as long as records have been uh, 
reported there. By midday on Saturday, the rainfall rate had risen enough over a short period of time to trigger the relatively new landslide warning dashboard into medium alert. Unveiled to the public a year ago this month, the dashboard uses rainfall data to determine Sitka's landslide risk as low, medium, or high. It was developed by the Sitka Sound Science Center in partnership with numerous other organizations after a landslide claimed three lives in Sitka in 2015. With the big storm forecast and the pounding rain in the middle of the day, it was the first time many Sitkins checked the dashboard to discover an elevated landslide risk. Dr. Annette Patton is the lead geoscientist with the Science Center. She says Saturday wasn't the first time the dashboard lit up yellow. The previous time was very briefly in the middle of the night without a whole lot of warning. This was kind of the first opportunity to see the full functionality of the dashboard and how it could be used. So definitely nerve wracking, but also we were really grateful to have a tool to be able to share with folks. And a very sizable landslide did happen over the weekend in Crawfish Inlet, about 30 nautical miles south of Sitka. And while the warning system is tailored to predict landslides closer to town, it's still a valuable data point for Patton. You know, one of the things that we know about warning and emergency communication is that if you tell people that an event is going to happen and then it doesn't, people start to lose trust. So, you know, in some senses, the fact that there was a landslide that didn't hurt anybody is, you know, it's not a good thing. But um, in that sense, it means that our tool is working the way that it's supposed to. And hopefully that helps folks learn to trust the system. The landslide also brings home the importance of community engagement in the development and continued honing of the warning system. Lisa Bush is the executive director of the Sitka Sound Science Center. We know about the landslide that happened in Crawfish because a fisherman, Mo Johnson, took a picture and sent it to his sister, Karen, who posted it, and we all passed it around. Um, but I guess I just really want people to know that sending those pictures really makes a big difference, and it really does help the science. Landslide monitors will hopefully get a break later this week. Meteorologist Pete Boyd says while Sitka's expected to get more rain midweek, the skies are looking clear this weekend. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. Still to come on Alaska News Nightly, American Idol producers search for their next star in western Alaska. This has got to be, I think, the first time we've done something like this, which is really exciting and really, really cool. That is ahead. Stay with us. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Whether this is your first try to quit or you've been down this path before, Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line can help you quit for good. Get help creating a plan that is right for you no matter if you smoke cigarettes, vape, use smokeless tobacco, or ICMIC. With options like calling a coach, receiving text messages, and nicotine replacement therapy with patches or gum, you can quit your way at any time of day or night. Call Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW or visit alaskaquitline.com. This message sponsored by Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line. A large ash eruption from Shishaldan Volcano disrupted air travel to the Aleutians this morning, but airline representatives said flights have since been able to transit around the ash cloud. The 35,000-foot plume caused a 30-minute delay for a Grant Aviation flight from Anchorage to Unalaska, but no other disruptions were reported. 
The cloud is now moving northeast into the Bering Sea towards western Alaska, according to the National Weather Service. Shishaldin, located on Unimak Island, is one of the most active volcanoes in the Aleutian Islands. Chris Way Thomas is a geologist for the Alaska Volcano Observatory and says experts don't know how long the Shishaldin volcano eruption will last. Previous eruptions have gone on for months. State and federal firefighting agencies have been providing reports on smoke around the interior kicked up by wildfires over the past few weeks. Agency officials say the public has shown a lot of interest in the reports, so they may become a regular feature during especially smoky fire seasons in Alaska. KUAC's Tim Ellis reports. Good afternoon, everyone. We've got a lot of fire on the landscape. Seth Morphis is a federal forest service air resource advisor from Montana who's been compiling reports on the smoke we've all been putting up with since late last month when dry lightning thunderstorms rolled through the interior, sparking dozens of wildfires. He says firefighting agencies brought him up here to provide 48-hour smoke forecasts for the public. The potential smoke impact, um, where and when and how bad. Morphus's reports have been posted to the akwildfire.com website and one maintained by the Alaska Interagency Coordinating Center. They've also been uploaded onto social media sites to make them available to a broader cross-section of the public. And BLM Alaska Fire Service spokesperson Al Nash says the response shows the public is interested. I haven't looked at the analytics. I can tell you that I know that the word got out and that it worked because the number of phone calls we were receiving about smoke and air quality diminished. Morphus says he'll be leaving his temporary post today because he, like all fire agency employees, is required to rotate out of temporary assignments after two weeks. Nash says he thinks it's unlikely that Morphus will be replaced this year by another air quality advisor because the fire season seems to be slowing down. Our air quality is improving due to reduced fire activity, and the forecast suggests that we are nearing the end of this period of significant fire activity. Fairbanks National Weather Service meteorologist Adam Gill agrees, and he says that's why the Fairbanks forecast for later this week does not include a mention of smoke. It does look like a lot of the fires, at least uh, surrounding Fairbanks here, is uh, really calming down. Gill says that doesn't mean the fire season is over, but he says cooler temperatures and rain through this week is likely to slow the growth of fires and tamp down the amount of smoke they produce. At least based off of the weather forecast we're seeing here, uh, it's not looking like fire activity is going to be picking up too much in order to bring back a whole lot of smoke. Nash says the public's interest in the smoke reports suggests officials with the state and federal agencies that brought Morphus up here this year may be inclined to do so again during the next exceptionally smoky fire season. I think fire managers would see the use of the air quality forecasts as a success. It's hard to predict what might be needed next season, but certainly they would seriously consider in the future if faced with significant smoke impacts. You can find out more about wildfire smoke forecasting by going to the Federal Interagency Wildland Fire Air Quality Response Program website at wildlandfiresmoke.net. In Delta Junction, I'm Tim Ellis.
an Anchorage entrepreneur is facing a tough decision as she grows her company. Heather's Choice makes and packages dehydrated meals, catering to the outdoor adventure market. Founder Heather Kelly recently partnered with a national sales company that represents popular brands like Smartwool and Lifestraw to expand the national reach of her products. But Heather's Choice was already selling 90% of their products to the lower 48, and as Kelly tells Alaska Public Media's Michael Finelli, as they continue to grow, she and her business partner have had to consider relocating. It's been a really wild adventure for Brad and I because, one, we both love Alaska, love living up here, love getting to participate in the community and create good jobs in the outdoor industry. The logistics of sending everything to Washington, having it consolidated, having it barged up here, manufacturing it, and then shipping it back down to the lower 48 where most of our customers are is super challenging. And unfortunately, even though we've been really well supported here, whether it's through Launch Alaska or the Alaska Accelerator Fund or just the startup community here, there's definitely a tipping point at which it's like, okay, if most of your customers are not in Alaska, it doesn't necessarily make sense to continue to manufacture here. So that's something that we grapple with often because we've tried intently for years to source more local ingredients besides our salmon, whether that's onions or it's potatoes or it's carrots or it's beef or it's bison. And consistently we've run into roadblocks either around seasonality or availability or price. And I wish that I was telling a different story about that, but it's continued to be infinitely challenging for us to be able to source more ingredients here and cut down on the amount of product that we're having to import. It's good to hear that you, you've tried to source more products here. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about why that's so challenging? So if we take an example like grass-fed bison, there are a small handful of people up here who do raise bison. One of the things we ran into is if we want to put grass-fed on our label, then those suppliers have to have a grass-fed certification, which costs money. And we consistently have found that those suppliers we've reached out to haven't wanted to take that step. And I think it's largely because they already have enough demand to support their lifestyle. Uh, they don't necessarily need the additional pressure that our growing business would put on them. So I feel like we've consistently run into that with Alaska suppliers basically saying, hey, we have enough business. We're good with what we're doing. And then the other piece is definitely around price. So getting grass-fed bison here in Alaska, Brad would know this more accurately, but if I remember correctly, it was about $13 a pound. In contrast, importing it, I think we're paying about $6.50 a pound. Wow. Less than, like, double, basically. Yeah. To double to source locally. And again, if we had most of our business here in Alaska, you know, maybe it would make sense for us to source more local ingredients and then continue to sell here locally. But honestly, as a food business, you have to have distribution. Yeah. So, I mean, as you're growing, getting in more and more, you're already struggling with like whether it makes sense to be shipping out of here. Are you, look, are you considering relocating to the lower 48 at this point? Yeah. It's gotten to the point now that it's not really something I can ignore. And I feel like if you reference back to any other interviews I've done over the last nine years, I've been like really stubborn, really diehard about keeping the business here in Alaska. 
And now, again, thanks to the success we've had, I'm having to really look at it and say, as an example, last year, I think we spent $60,000 in inbound freight, which is $60,000 I would love to spend on something else. <laughs> you know, like, And so that's something that I grapple with all the time as somebody who was born and raised up here, wanting to create great jobs for the people you met today. And then having to balance that with the reality of like, okay, there's essentially an Alaska tax, <laughs> which is that inbound and outbound freight for doing business up here. That was Heather's Choice founder, Heather Kelly, talking to Alaska Public Media's Michael Finelli about the challenges of doing business in Alaska. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. The IBEW is the union of skilled hands and generous hearts, hardworking people on the job and off. It's the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the IBEW. This message sponsored by the IBEW Local 1547. Strong connections can help people thrive during tough times. Whether it's spending quality time with loved ones, finding peace in nature, or the unconditional love of furry companions, these connections help people stay present and have healthier relationships with ourselves and others. Share what makes you feel connected at chooseconnectionak.org. This message sponsored by the Alliance. When a team of scientists departed Galena to find a trove of footprints left along the middle section of the Yukon River earlier this month, one of the questions they hoped to answer was how many kinds of dinosaurs lived there nearly 100 million years ago. As KYUK's Emily Schwing reports, the expedition has answered a lot of questions about the area's prehistoric biodiversity. On the eighth day of a 16-day field expedition, scientists stumbled upon a big find. I like when they're this easy to see. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's all I can say. It's like, um, these are beautiful. And they're just everywhere. Paleontologist Tony Fiorillo says this must have been a place where ancient birds just like to be. He says maybe there was lots of food here for them. He's found tracks like this in other parts of Alaska. But this is crazy. And you know, the, the strange thing is this kind of bird track, whether we see it here, whether we see it in... Um, Denali, we always find them in clusters, like so it would suggest that these, whatever this bird is, it's gregarious. Or it just had a lot of nervous feet. The tracks were made by something Fiorello says are shorebird-like. He also says there are prints from at least two different species, and they're all over the tops of at least 16 blocks of rock. Over the course of an afternoon, Fiorillo and his colleague, Yoshi Kobayashi, a paleontology professor from Japan's Hokkaido University, identified footprints from at least five ancient bird and dinosaur species that once lived here. There's no record of any paleontologist ever digging as deep for details about the dinosaurs that date back to the early Cretaceous. Kobayashi has been all over the world tracking down dinosaurs, including in Mongolia and Uzbekistan. He says it's not necessarily rare to find blocks of rocks rich with bird tracks. Yeah, there's a place in South Korea that if you go to the, like a southern tip of the peninsula, mm-hmm. Korean peninsula, there's a, a beach or the rock full covered with like small bird tracks. Huh. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. 
The team chose this part of the river to explore because they wanted to know more about the biodiversity. And they say they're surprised by what they found. There are many more species of ancient reptiles and birds than they were expecting. The researchers will continue downriver past Caltag for the next few days. They'll head back upriver to Nalato by August 16th. Along the Yukon River, I'm Emily Schwang. And if you're in Nulato this week, you can meet the paleontologists and talk about what they've found and share your own experiences at Nulato's Community Hall at 6 p.m. on Wednesday. The hit TV show American Idol is recruiting talent from part of rural Alaska this year in a unique way. Producers of the singing competition are partnering with KNOM in Nome to send community radio staffers out to remote communities by boat and by plane to film audition tapes for Alaskans struggling with unstable internet. American Idol senior producer Melissa Elfar says it's a way to hear from people who might otherwise not be able to audition. We do not leave any stone left unturned, and we like to audition anybody and everybody across the country who wants to audition. The partnership is specific to Western Alaska. Everywhere else, people audition on a set date over video call. Alaska's virtual auditions happened yesterday, but for many people in Western Alaska, this summer a video call is impossible. A damaged fiber optic cable has led to extensive internet outages in the region. Elfar says flying people out to record videos with hopeful contestants is a new approach for the show. This has got to be, I think, the first time we've done something like this, which is really exciting and really, really cool. KNOM plans to head to villages including Teller and Brevig Mission. Western Alaskans who do have stable internet can also upload their pre-recorded video auditions to KNOM's website themselves. Singers who are selected will be flown to Nome for a live virtual audition this September. After that, the final round of auditions happens in L.A. with judges Katy Perry, Luke Bryan, and Lionel Richie. But first, the producers have to sort through all the audition tapes. Elfar says that's her favorite part. This is the best part of the show, I think, when, because this is when we're discovering the talent and we're finding people and meeting people, hearing stories, and hearing so many beautiful voices. Anyone in western Alaska between the ages of 15 and 28 can submit a video. Auditions close August 21st. Well, the Barbie movie finally premiered in Kodiak over the weekend. The film has grossed over a billion dollars worldwide and taken the internet by storm. KMXD's Brian Venois attended Kodiak's first showing and has this report. It was a windy Friday and patrons adorned in pink clothes lined the sidewalk and round the corner an hour before showtime to see Barbie. Teresa Novakovich was one person in line early to see the film for the first time. She says she was interested in seeing the movie's social commentary. And so I'm really excited about that, that it's not just another um, film to entertain us, but maybe that has a good message, and that's what I'm hoping for. And I also loved Barbies as a kid. (laughs) Catherine Hollis Buchanan, on the other hand, saw it a few weeks ago while on a trip to Anchorage. She says she wasn't particularly interested in the movie before seeing it for the first time, but she's here at the Kodiak premiere with friends. I just really think they did a great job of she stays a doll the whole time, and it's incredible how she did that as an actress. The theater was almost completely sold out on its first showing on Friday. The movie had the audience laughing while also tackling serious topics like facets of a patriarchal society. The Orpheum Theater currently has Barbie slated to run through Thursday, but could continue showing the film another week, depending on patronage. In Kodiak, I'm Brian Venois. That's all for this edition of Alaska News Nightly. 
We had reports tonight from Liz Ruskin, Michael Finelli, and Dev Hardiker in Anchorage, Desiree Hagan in Kotzebue, Catherine Rose in Sitka, Sophia Stewart-Rossi in Unalaska, Tim Ellis in Delta Junction, Emily Schwing out there on the Yukon River, and Brian Venois in Kodiak. Our audio engineer is Chris Hyde, Tim Rocky is our producer, and I'm Casey Grove. Good night. Alaska News Nightly was made possible by Alaska Air Cargo, serving the commerce and business needs of 20 Alaska communities, from Adak to Barrow to Ketchikan. More information at alaskacargo.com. And by ConocoPhillips Alaska, building the next generation of Alaska's workforce through investments in education and vocational training to provide jobs right here at home. ConocoPhillips Alaska. This is statewide news on Alaska Public Media.